in Isaiah 9-6. And last week, Nate did a great job as he launched this series and spoke about the first name that's given to Jesus, Wonderful Counselor. So our series is taken from Isaiah 9-6, which is a, a well-known passage read at Christmas time. Uh, the book of Isaiah was written nearly 700 years before the birth of Jesus in human flesh. Yet this book has a lot to say about the Messiah. And so that's why we are digging into it. And summarize it just a little bit. This book tells of a people who are faithless, trusting in foreign powers for protection, and then finding themselves being threatened by those very same foreign nations. So Israel has been divided, at this point has already been divided, uh, into two kingdoms, and that followed the reign of Solomon. And so Isaiah's book focuses mostly on Judah, the southern kingdom. About 100 years later, after this book, Judah would be sent into exile for their rebellion, into Babylonian captivity. Yet the book of Isaiah isn't just a book pronouncing judgment. It ultimately reveals to his chosen people and to us reading it today that God's mercy and his faithfulness to his covenant is greater than our unfaithfulness. I say it often, but the purpose of the Old Testament was not to show that we can live a holy and uh, faithful life through our own strength and our own abilities. The Bible isn't written to show us what to do and what not to do, and if you do these things, you'll be all right. No, the Old Testament and really the whole Bible is the story of Jesus. It's the story of our redemption through Christ. And so the purpose of the Old Testament is to show us where we couldn't keep the law, how we couldn't keep the law, and ultimately to point us to Christ. We need a Savior. Isaiah tells us of the faithlessness of Judah, God's chosen people. They had the scriptures, the law, the sacrificial system, and still they could not keep it all. But Isaiah doesn't conclude with, well, guys, you had your shot. Sorry, moving on. No, he draws out the judgment of not being faithful. But he also points us to the one who could come and be faithful and live the life that no one else could live in perfect obedience and ultimately go to the cross as our Savior. He reveals that the Savior that was coming wouldn't come in and power and conquer uh, the Roman oppressors, but that he would conquer through suffering and absorbing the curses of not keeping covenant so that we can live in covenant blessing. The suffering servant would conquer by dying for our sins as the ultimate sacrifice. Isaiah also points to a time of coming restoration. In all of this, we begin to see a strange juxtaposition. God is mighty, yet the way our greatest struggle, sin, is dealt with is through the weakness of suffering. Our weakness isn't conquered through our might, but through God the Son coming in human flesh and being crucified in our place. And so we'll suss that out a bit more as we go, uh, but let's read the text that we are using for these four messages, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, one of the cool things about what we're doing this Christmas, and it wasn't necessarily intentionally planned this way from the very beginning, 
but it's just kind of come together this way. But the children's ministry as well is going through this passage and the four names uh, given to Jesus. And the women's ministry is going to be looking at it as well um, when you guys get together this coming Saturday. So we're, we're kind of all just taking a deep dive into this passage to see uh, Jesus and, and what he is to us a little bit more. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to us as a child. We thank you for his love for us and his obedience to you and that he grew and um, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live and ultimately went to the cross for our sins to give us forgiveness, to bring us into relationship with you. Lord, as we explore this, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see this clearer, that we would um, see more of who you are and who your son is, Lord, that we would grow in grace. And it's in Jesus' name, his mighty name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at the mighty God. So as we're looking at these four names that are given in Isaiah 9-6, I just want to mention, you know, like these names would not have been used as proper names for Jesus. You know, he wasn't like running out the door and his mother Mary shouting after him like, make sure you're home in time for dinner, wonderful counselor. Like that's, that's not how they were used. But these names do describe who he is, his character, his personality, uh, and the things that he would ultimately do. They express who Jesus is as he relates to us. Paul David Tripp said, These four names really tell you all you need to know about the Christmas story, about who that baby in the manger really is. So it's important for us at Christmas time, when we're talking about the baby Jesus, when we're singing about the baby Jesus, um, that we're not just only considering him as an infant. Yes, he came as a baby. But who is Jesus? This passage describes who he is. The second name that we see in this passage given to the promised Messiah and the focus for today is Mighty God. Right off the bat, this description would have caused a lot of consternation to the religious Jew. This promised child was not simply a mighty king or a warrior, conqueror, but God incarnate. In Hebrew, the word for God used here in Isaiah 9-6 is El and is derived from the word for strength. The word translated mighty is the word gibor. This word is most often used for mighty, but can also refer to a a warrior or a champion. He spoke by his word uh, and displayed his might. He, uh, throughout the Bible, did things that are beyond our ability to comprehend. His strength and his might is constantly displayed in various ways Nate talked a lot about it last week by describing what the word wonderful means. And that was a wonderful, oh man, that's a terrible pun. That was a wonderful description. Um, But Nate did a great job of tying in God's wondrous deeds uh, in his message. But really the names of God display that as well. Another name that we're familiar with is Elohim, meaning God, creator, mighty and strong. Uh, As I said, he spoke and created all that there is. There's another name, El, Eloah, which means God, mighty, strong, and prominent. This is seen in Nehemiah 9.17. 
I want to read that. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Where it says God there, it's the word, it's the name, El Eloah. So these various names for God are all tied to his power and his might, his creative power, his strength, his his prominence. They're all displaying who he is. And the names mentioned in Isaiah 9-6 can ultimately only belong to God. Just one chapter over in Isaiah, he uses this same name, El Gibor, Mighty God, about God the Father. Isaiah 10-21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see God called the mighty God. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. One second. Gotta love technology. Yeah, this is always fun. Mike always asks, why do I use a tablet? Typically, it's easier. Until there's days when it's not. So as I said, Nate shared about the word wonderful last Sunday, connected it to all the miraculous things that God has done, his power and his might. This name, Mighty God, is well connects to the miraculous. God, by his mighty power, his wonderful working power has done amazing things to deliver his people time and time again. And we could talk for all eternity of all the ways God shows his power. He created the world with his words. He spoke and everything that there is became. He parted the Red Sea for Israel to cross over on dry ground. He fed all of Israel with manna from heaven for 40 years in the wilderness. He delivered the three Hebrews out of the fiery furnace. All of these and more show the miraculous, wonderful power of El Gibor, the mighty God. But God is not just mighty. I want to draw your attention to one facet of all of this wonderful, miraculous power being displayed. Namely, that his might is deeply connected to the heart of God and his everlasting love for his people. So I want to return to a verse that we just read a moment ago from Nehemiah. And I want to draw your attention to the very end of the verse. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. So God, mighty and strong to forgive. Mighty in his grace and his mercy. And his overflowing, abounding, steadfast love. We would maybe read that, uh, you know, that God is mighty and think just of his wondrous deeds, just of his power, just of the miracles that he's done. But God connects this through the writers of the Old Testament to his heart and his love for his people. Nehemiah continues in this same uh, chapter down in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. 
Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. So the Almighty God is faithful. He keeps his covenant. He's he's gracious and merciful, ready to forgive, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He is the mighty God, and he's full of love. Israel knew of God's power. They knew of his might. In the verses surrounding what I read from Nehemiah, the people had actually gathered to read the law together and to confess their sin. They recounted many of the wondrous works of God that I just listed a moment ago. And they tied it all together. All these wondrous things that he's done directly to his heart. That he is a God of steadfast love. So his might and his love are inseparable. When he displays his power, when he displays his might, it's because of love. And jumping back in time a little bit. Actually, about a 100 years prior, the prophet Jeremiah made the same connection when he wrote in chapter 32, verse 18, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah uses the same word for God, El Gibor, the mighty God. The mighty God who shows steadfast love to thousands of generations. Jeremiah is essentially saying the same thing that God says about himself in Exodus 34. There God revealed his glory to Moses. He declared his love for his people. And he promised Moses that his people would see wonders and marvels such as the world had never seen before. So far we've only looked at the Old Testament. And the reason for that was to show you that God has revealed, um, to show you what God has revealed about himself. Up to this point, for many, many years, God had been revealing to his people his mighty power and his steadfast love as the story of redemption was being written. He revealed this in Exodus, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Nehemiah and in many of the other books of the Old Testament. But the greatest revelation of his love was yet to be seen. The greatest marvel, the greatest wonder, the greatest deed of this mighty God would be seen when God the Father would send his Son to be born of woman, God in human flesh. And so that's what we're going to look at now, mighty God in the flesh. When Isaiah wrote the words of our passage, he was announcing the birth of the future king of kings. Now we're likely familiar with birth announcements. Traditionally, they're sent out uh, as soon after birth as possible. And etiquette allows for up to six months. I don't know who sets the etiquette rules in the world, but that's a unique job. I want to be the person who writes that book. I I think I might give you an extension. Like, you got eight months to send this out. Because we all know what it's like, you know? But if you happen to be a member of the royal family in the United Kingdom, and I know they're watching this morning, um, you'll be required to do a bit more formal of a birth announcement. A royal birth is traditionally announced via a bulletin placed on an easel in the forecourt of Buckingham Palace. This framed typewritten bulletin, which is commonly brought out of the privy purse door after it is driven to the palace by car from the birth, is signed by the medical team which attends the royal birth. 
And like most birth announcements, it usually uh, includes certain details such as name, gender, weight, height, and perhaps a brief status on the health of the mother. Pretty fancy. Isaiah, though not the first prophet to tell of the coming Redeemer, is giving us a very special birth announcement. It is a royal birth announcement, but it's unique in that he didn't really follow the etiquette rules of waiting till the child had been born. Instead, God, through Isaiah, gives us this birth announcement 700 years before the birth of the child. So this announcement is super early. In doing so, God gives his people hope that would strengthen them during dark days as they lived in exile in Babylon, even when living in exile in their own land upon their return, and then later living under an oppressive government when Rome conquered. They anxiously awaited the coming of this king who would restore the kingdom. They waited for the advent of the Messiah. Advent is the season of celebration and anticipation leading up to Christmas. The word Advent means coming. During this season, we remember the first Advent, the first coming of our Lord Jesus. There's a deep longing that is connected to this. For those living during the 700 years between Isaiah's prophecies and the first Advent, there was a deep longing for the coming Messiah who would restore the kingdom. For us today, we long for the second advent, the second coming of Christ, when King Jesus will return. This week is the second week of the advent season. We've, I would say lit, but we just kind of twisted the bottom until the light started. Uh, These two candles. Last week there was only one, now there's two. This week is uh, about the preparation for the coming king. Israel had the birth announcement. And there was a long season of waiting. But sadly, most missed the coming that they looked for. Because most of them were looking for a different kind of king. They were looking for a political hero. They were looking for someone who would conquer by might and by the sword and throw off their political oppressors. But at the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus Not to fix their political woes, but to redeem his people. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The mighty God has come in the flesh. Again, he would be no mere mortal king. The coming Messiah would be human, born of a woman, but he would also be God in the flesh. And in Luke's gospel, we overhear another announcement about this same king. Luke 1, 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So we see that Jesus, the child of Isaiah 9, 6, will be given the throne and his kingdom will not end. He will be the king. He will be the king of kings and the high king of heaven. The Apostle Paul affirms that Jesus was not just human, but that he is God. In Romans 9, 5, to them, speaking of Israel, uh, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
So Jesus is king. He is God the Son. He is the mighty God of Isaiah 9-6. He's filled with power and might. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, writes, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul says that all things were created by him and for him. As well, the author of Hebrews shows us that he holds the universe together by his power and has made purification for our sins. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is indeed the mighty God. He is the one that Isaiah is speaking of. And he is also fully human. This is called the incarnation. When Jesus, the son of God, took on human flesh. The word incarnation means the act of being made flesh. Jesus, when conceived by Mary, was both fully God and fully human. 100% God, 100% man. And this is something that ultimately uh, we're a bit incapable of understanding the, the full meaning of all of that. But we've seen based on scripture that Jesus is the mighty God. And yet in perhaps the most profound of mysteries, Jesus, the mighty God, comes in the weakness of human flesh. Nate shared from uh, 1 Corinthians 1 last week. And in this passage, we see that God chooses the weak things of this world. The world thinking themselves to be wise looks at God's ways and declares them to be foolish. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When you look at how Jesus could have come to this earth, God chose the weakest means possible. A helpless baby lying in a manger. Born to poor people. A poor family. Much like Gideon, the least of these. Jesus comes in weakness and humility to a people group that was oppressed. He didn't visit Caesar's house and install the next Caesar to rule the Roman Empire. He sends Jesus, a helpless baby, to a people in bondage and oppression. But they were his people. So the prophet Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And I know that this is a chapter that we're very familiar with. <clears throat> but I want you to listen to the first three verses and just consider how foolish all of this sounds. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
had no form or majesty, no beauty. He was despised and rejected. He wasn't on Instagram with 1.9 million followers. He wasn't uh, the popular guy in the city. There was nothing about him in physical appearance that would make you go, that, that guy is going to go somewhere. That guy is going to be something when he grows up. In fact, when, his, when he went to his own people and preached, they were like, isn't this the son of the carpenter? He was rejected. He was despised. The mighty God, able to crush all enemies in a display of his greatness, suffered in human weakness. And you can read more about that suffering as you uh, read through the chapter of Isaiah 53. We're not going to look at that, uh, the remainder of that passage today, but I encourage you to look through it. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be human at all? Jesus came to save, and in order to save, he needed to succeed where Adam failed. Adam failed to obey God, and Jesus, as our representative man, had to obey, and he did. Jesus also had to die in our place as our perfect substitute. If Christ wasn't fully man, he could not have died. He couldn't have died in our place. He could not have been a sacrifice for our sin. But he also had to be fully God. There are several reasons why this is necessary. Only God could bear the full penalty of all our sins. Salvation is from the Lord. It's fully of him. No human can save, save themselves. And only God can forgive sin. And because Jesus is the mighty God, he can also say your sins are forgiven. Only someone who was fully God could serve as mediator between God and man. God's full power and might was displayed in the appearance of weakness when Jesus, as our substitute, was crucified on the cross. And really, the answer to the question of why Jesus came in this manner is that we were born dead in our sins and trespasses. Because of my sin, I needed a Savior. God sent his Son into this world in human flesh. He grew as a normal child grows. He lived a perfect life of obedience. And ultimately, he went to the cross to pay for your sin and for my sin. To redeem us. He died, was buried, and he rose again for the forgiveness of sins to all who would believe. And this is why Jesus, the mighty God, has come. His might displayed in apparent weakness. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Sinclair Ferguson said, That's where the power is to be found. Power to set me free from my deepest bondage. Isaiah is looking forward to this day when a Savior will come who will have the power through his weakness to set us free from the guilt and power of sin. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Having risen, he now has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, the mighty God, is now enthroned and is exalted above all others, having a name above every other name. This Christmas season, let your hearts be encouraged. Jesus, the mighty God, knows weakness. As the author of Hebrews tells us, he can even sympathize with our weakness. His grace comes to you in your weakness. It's in weakness that he works. And at the center of this is Jesus, the mighty God. Let's pray. <clears throat> mighty God, we thank you that because our Lord Jesus has humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, you have highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for your glory. We thank you that authority has been given to him both in heaven and on earth that you have set him over the works of your hands and have put everything in subjection under his feet and have crowned him with glory and honor that he is king of kings and lord of lords that the ancient of days has given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and everlasting dominion and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who came in weakness to die for our sins, to purchase for himself a people. It's in the name of Jesus, the name that is above all other names. We thank you this morning. Amen.